Abolition. Abolition. Today. Poets out of the black arts movement in the 60s, the, that, this is where the rap comes from. Rap comes from, we are the old men of the rap age. When we started bringing the music and the poetry and stuff together, it was considered, wow, we said, we want poetry that you can take out of these classrooms, that you can read in bars and taverns, that you can read in playgrounds, that you can read on the street. So we did in the 60s. That's what I used to tell my students. You think your stuff is good? See those guys digging a hole in the street there? When they get a, a minute off to eat a sandwich, go read them a poem. If you don't get hit in the head, if you don't get hit in the head, you got a future. He stood on the street corner in East Oakland. His pants sagging, gold grill in his mouth. I overheard him bragging about being a gorilla. He called himself a cold-blooded savage killer, a beast on these streets. I told him white people used to view Odabinga as a savage too. He was like, Odabinga who? I told him Odabinga was a black man that was captured from Africa and placed in a cage at the Bronx Zoo. True story. They locked him in a cage with an orangutan. White people would laugh at him during their visit. Zoo officials called his cage the monkey house exhibit. They claim Odabinga was a beast and African savage who exhibited animal characteristics. And you're probably wondering what does Odabinga have to do with you? Black man, you need to understand that the past plays a role in the present. And Odabinga's life is still relevant because there are still races who view us black men as savage beast prone to violence and less intelligent so when you call yourself a beast that's the same way these police view you in the streets they want you to live according to your animal instincts so they can detain you and change at their police precinct they don't want you to think black man they want you extinct watch fox news they don't want to see you graduate from their Ivy League schools. They would rather see you wearing county blues. They want you to be the new Odabinga so they can laugh at you and lock you up in their prisons, which are nothing more than modern-day zoos. I once heard a white police officer refer to the black community as a concrete jungle, and he called himself the zookeeper. It was then I realized why so many black men are in prison yards and why the state pays prison guards more money than school teachers. The primary purpose of the police is to lock you up in the belly of the beast, shoot you dead like an animal in the street. They want you to kill and unleash your self-destructive rage so they can lock you up like a beast and place you in a steel cage. Learn about the politics of prison and how this media portrays us black men as violent primates. They claim we're the reason for the rising crime rates. Learn about the racist scholars who write pseudo-scientific books like the bell curve that claim we have an inferior brain. And let's not forget how President Obama was portrayed as a monkey during his presidential campaign. Ain't nothing changed. So black man, when you call yourself a savage beast, a person who doesn't believe in peace, that gives these police a reason to try and justify shooting you dead like a monkey in the street, or taking you to jail and chains like a beast on a leash. Until we as black men start using our higher senses, our enemy is going to continue to build higher prison fences. Until we start teaching our youth how to write complete sentences and not commit violent offenses, these white judges are going to continue to write longer prison sentences. Research your history. Black man, you see how our enemy used animal imagery during slavery. Branded us like cattle, called our ancestors cannibals, and considered us related to animals. But we are not monkeys, gorillas, beasts, and baboons. We are not niggas, goons, cullets, and coons. We are not porch monkeys. Symbols, chicken boots, or jungle bunnies. And I refuse to look at a black woman's ass and say she has a donk. Black man, beware when you call yourself a beast or killer and boast about pimping. The popos will arrest you, lock you up in their prison zoo, and society will view you as a gorilla limping. We are not beasts. It's this savage society that uses violent music and video games to promote violent behavior. So U.S. politicians and the prison industrial complex can use us as cheap labor. Their plan is to lock us up in cages so they can profit off our labor by paying us cheap prison wages. Slavery is back. 
Why you think they started to privatize prisons? It's a form of social Darwinism, survival of the fittest. Black man, we are on society titless. We ain't meant to survive in this system. Ever notice how the concrete slabs and iron bars in prisons are similar to the zoos the animals live in? But in the memory of Oda Binga, I will not allow this society to label us as intellectual pygmies. Black man, learn your history. Put down the gun and pick up a book. Read Ivan Vansatima and you will see how our ancestors were not uncivilized people in Africa living in a bush. Our ancestors built the majestic civilizations of Kemet and Kush. So how can we be beat when our ancestors in the Nile Valley created the concept of civilization and peace? They stripped us of our freedom and brought us in chains when the slave ships stopped. Then they sold our families and separated us on auction blocks. Now in prison, they strip you of your name and give you a number in a sale block. And nowadays, they separate black families by using street corners and claim we selling rocks. So I'm spitting this poem because I don't want to see another brother getting burnt by the beast or get arrested by the boys in blue. Black man, understand you are not a beast. And I don't want the next brother they lock up in their concrete zoo to be you. Rest in peace to Oscar Grant. Rest in peace to Sean Bell. I'm a dude Diallo and every other black man. These beasts have... Abolition. 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 You just heard the legendary poet laureate Amiri Barako on the origins of rap, followed by The Beast by Kyrie. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with specific focus on modern slavery as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6th Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archived podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. Abolition Today is also available on all major podcast platforms and is simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. My name is Yusuf Hassan. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Max Parthas. Peace, Max. Peace, brother man. I'm here streaming live from the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center in Sumter, South Carolina. Well, last week, uh, Max and I directly addressed the pro-slavery, anti-black arguments, the complete denial, the logical fallacies, the stereotypes and tropes, the arguments of the past and the present because they are one and the same, and we broke it all down to expose the insanity of the slaver class and their puppet minions. Today is observed as Easter Sunday and the first week of Poetry Month, so we've got poets, preachers, and teachers who will break down slavery in black and white. We just heard the story of Oda Benga, and we have many other things coming up. The history of white people in America, how America invented race, uh, the contemporary conflation of slavery in the Bible, for-profit prison as an economic development program. We have spoken word coming up from Maya Angelou, Oscar Brown Jr., the abolitionist Francis Allen Harper and Frederick Douglass, all that and much more. As always, we have music, poetry, a masterclass on modern constitutional slavery abolition, updates on the national movement, and we'll bring the ancestors' words to life without bridging the gap segment. So after all that, Max, how was your week, brother? Man, you know, it's been very exciting. You shared some highlights with me, uh, the conversation you and I and Sean Darling had with Dr. Joy James. Uh, yes. That was very inspirational. You know, uh, for those that don't know, there's certain things we're trying to do with the ASN and the Abolish Slavery National Network, and one of them is to build an educational caucus, uh, academics caucus. So you've probably heard some of them as guests here on Abolition Today, like uh, Professor uh, Robert uh, Chase, Professor the mm-hmm. Historian, 
So, you know, we're building an academic caucus so that we can start teaching the truth first to the teachers and then into the universities and colleges, as well as into the high schools and grammar schools. Um, you know, as Professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad has said before, the 13th Amendment is probably the most under-researched uh, item in the uh, period of Reconstruction. So, you know, we really haven't gone into that, but at least we have. <laughs> we know what it does right here at right. Abolition Today, right? So we were right. deep into that. And it was a very fruitful conversation with uh, Dr. James. It really was. And just as a caveat to that, Max, so you mentioned that we're going into the educational aspect, and we're actually attacking this. We have a three-phase attack or three-prong attack because it's educational, it's legislative, and it's also legal. So we have, Mm -hmm. just as we're getting educators together, we're getting lawyers together, and we're getting legislators together because it's going to take that collective effort to combat this enemy called slavery. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we got to come at it from multiple areas. Uh, we'd like to see it to the point where as soon as slavery has been abolished in a state, that very day it's challenged in court. Uh, the slave-like conditions, the forced labor, the badges and incidents of slavery with a team of attorneys. And we've been working with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. We've been working with uh, the Vera Institute for Justice and even mm-hmm. the uh, ACLU are all on board now. We're talking about legions of lawyers about to get on right. their ass. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's what's happening with, with the ASNN. We're building those different uh, caucuses, uh, legislative caucus too, because we know we need three quarters of representatives on our side. And so we're getting that all set up in advance. So when we say we want to take this out of the Constitution, we mean to actually do it, you know, not have stuff. So that right. was awesome. I also had a nice conversation with Brother Stephen Johnson Grove uh, out of Ohio and Gina. You remember Gina? We played a clip uh, right. from Loving Out Loud. And she uh, is one of the leaders of Ohio's Epic. And she uh, facilitates phone call. But this brother, 15 years, an attorney and a fundraiser. <laughs> and he's like, yo, I want, I'm down 100%. I'm, how can I help? And we found a lot of ways that uh, he can help. So, you know, things are starting to look better and better and better every day in this fight to end slavery. And then on a personal level, I have some serious, serious uh, surgery done on my jaw, man. So I'm not Mm -hmm. at 100% today. I may sound a little funny. That's why. Because this whole grill hurts right now. (laughs) You know? Wow. And so you also have something big coming up this week, right? Yes. Um, as a matter of fact, tomorrow we leave for Louisiana. Uh, Louisiana is having its press release uh, to announce its anti-slavery bill, which will remove the exception clause in the Louisiana State Constitution. Uh, that will happen on the 7th of this month uh, in front of the Capitol building in Baton Rouge. So if you're anywhere near the area, come on down. We need as much support as possible for this historic moment when the prison capital of the world, a former uh, Confederate antebellum slavery practicing chattel slavery convict leasing using slave state ends legalizing. Now, we know that slavery in practice and slavery on law are two different things. But as we mentioned a little bit earlier, we're working on that. 
It, it doesn't all happen at once. It never did, and it never will. Never will. Mm-hmm. You got to escape so, this thing. I'd say while we're on the story of Louisiana, uh, for those who recall last year when our episode entitled uh, Eating Jim Crow, where we discussed the U.S. Supreme Court overturning uh, Ramos versus or through Ramos versus Louisiana, they're overturning the non-unanimous jury verdicts where well, people were having 10-2 juries and 11-1 juries. You want to say something, Max? Yeah, before we got into the story, I just wanted to make sure that people understood uh, the poem that you just heard at the opening uh, about Otabinga. Oh. There is, yeah, there's a whole uh, documentary yeah. called Human Zoos, America's Forgotten History of scientific racism. You can get that on Abolition Today at our Facebook page uh, and check it out at your leisure. I mean, this really happened, and that poem was super powerful in explaining it. Only poetry can do stuff like that, you know? Right, and it's absolutely a tremendous story. Oda Benga was a uh, Vutu? Um, He was from the Vutu Pygmies. He was uh, 4 foot 11, and they actually uh, locked him up in a cage at the Bronx Zoo. For the, uh, uh, I think it was the Louisiana Purchase Expo- Expedition that they had, and he was literally held in a cage in the Bronx Zoo for everyone to go by and look at him. That's what they did to him. You know, they had uh, sharpened his teeth to make him look more ferocious. There's a lot of things they did to him, and yeah, definitely look at that. Uh, documentary. What was it called again, Max? Human Zoos? It's called Human Zoos, America's Forgotten History of Scientific Racism. And you can view it for free. It's one of our suggested films from the Abolish Slavery National Network for those that want to educate themselves on the true history of this country uh, in regards to race and bondage. So just go to Abolition Today on our Facebook page. I'll read a little bit about it from the description. It says, often touted as missing links between man and apes. These native peoples were harassed and demeaned. Their public display was arranged with the enthusiastic support of the most elite members of the scientific community, and it was promoted uncritically by America's leading newspapers. This award-winning documentary explores the heartbreaking story of what happened, shows how African-American ministers and other people of faith tried to push back, and reveals how some people today are still drawing on social Darwinism in order to dehumanize others. The film also explores the tragic story of eugenics in America, the effort to breed human beings based on Darwinian principles. Uh, yeah, they, they, that's what was going on during this period that he was in this zoo, uh, living with baboons, uh, or the bear, that they had this scientific all-white community deciding through eugenics, the practice of eugenics, who was worthy to live and who was worthy to die. And you know, just as today, uh, they think of us as animals. <laughs> you know, like what did we hear from right. that judge last week in the court that was on the live feed and didn't know it, talking about how oh they're trying to make this black guy seem like he's an angel when he's not. What's left unspoken is what they all say: he's an animal. He's a freaking right. animal. Oda Banker. He's an animal. Yeah, and that justifies human. treatment. Right. Right. It justifies the mistreatment. And the dehumanization of the individual. Exactly. And this is not too long ago. You know what I mean? This uh, was just back in the, the uh, early 19th century. 
1940s, right. 1950s, that this was going on, where, uh, you know, eugenics was developed, and it was used on people without their permission. Right. All right, so I'm oh, sorry. You can go ahead and get, get back into that Louisiana story because that was important, man. So, uh, and and I encourage everyone to to look into our archives. It's uh, episode 16 of season one. It was called Eating Jim Crow, where we went into thorough detail of the Ramos versus Louisiana uh, Supreme Court decision overturning Louisiana and Oregon's usage of having non-unanimous jury verdicts. You know, someone can be charged with murder, facing the rest of their life, and the jury doesn't come back with a unanimous verdict, and they were able to convict them anyway. And so Ramos overturned this. The court admitted in its uh, in its decision the racial roots behind that. And then on and the reason that they had this uh, non-unanimous is to nullify the black juror vote. So if a black juror was there and they wanted to vote not guilty, it didn't matter because they didn't need a unanimous vote. So the Supreme Court overturned that uh, practice. Now there's a case that was just argued before the U.S. Supreme Court called Edwards versus Varnoy, and this is testing whether or not it can be retroactive. You know, and as the prosecutors said in the Ramos case, when that came down, they were just so bent out of shape to where they're like, you know, we've been doing this for 40 years. Why should we touch it? Why are we going to upset this? You know, they're, they're more worried about uh, their practice than they are in bringing justice to people. The United States Constitution guarantees, you know, a person a right to a fair trial and that they have to be tried before a jury of their peers, and it has to be a unanimous verdict. And so this uh, Edwards versus Von Noy is going to test whether or not this can be retroactive. And I know many people down in Louisiana, probably many of their family members are listening in, and they'll get word to them, letting them know that we are spreading the word on that, that we're aware of it. It was just heard. Uh, back on February 8th, and we're just awaiting to the, the Supreme Court's decision, and we'll definitely bring everyone up to date on that. Max? Yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, there's a couple thousand people waiting for the results of this Supreme Court ruling um, in order to get their freedom because they were railroaded through a racist jury. Uh, in my poem, I've seen something. I referenced that because I've been in those uh, courtrooms and seen them put those all white juries together. But in my case, mm-hmm. when I was there with a brother who was a guest on the program, James Tucker, Nine Elements, uh, they chose right. uh, 11 white people and one very light, light-skinned uh, mixed-race person. That was how they picked them for this dark-skinned brother that was there with me. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I've seen them do this. Now, imagine if they didn't have to get uh, all 12. If they only had to get 10. And that's how they right. were rolling now. And he even admitted that it was because of to keep the spirit of the white race and the control of the Negroes in the courts back in the late 1800s. This was part of what they said in the Constitution regarding that. Uh, there's right. a lot of racist stuff like that in these constitutions that has to come out. <laughs> so it really there is. Other, there's other good news that came out too, and I, I, I'm seeing this as a trend, and I'm very happy that it is. New York just 
legalize recreational marijuana. And in addition to that, they're going to expunge tens of thousands of records for people who have incarcerated for marijuana and release those who have been incarcerated for marijuana. Um, you know, I'm not saying that this is any way justice, but they're getting out of cages, you know, and uh, you won't have to worry about uh, them breathing down your necks for the simple act of smoking a, a joint. People have been doing since back in Adam and Eve. That's probably the first thing they did. Be like, yo, roll up one of these real quick. Eve, check this out. Fire. It's a new thing. Yeah, try that. <laughs> you know? Like, it, right. it goes back that far. <laughs> Nobody ever overdosed on a weed. But we know why weed was criminalized. It was ordered. It's the same reason that the drug war started with Nixon, in order to criminalize what people were doing. Uh, and usually it was uh, a group particular groups of people. So whatever they were doing, they would make that against the law and by default be able to arrest them. Absolutely. And this this as you mentioned, this is the first step, you know, we're not seeing it as restorative justice because they you know, people have to be made whole. I'm thinking of not just people that have marijuana arrest, but I'm thinking of the people where Officers come up to the car, you know, they're pulling you over. We know driving while black is a thing. You know, people may want to deny it, but it's a real thing. And then all the officer has to say is, I smelled marijuana. And now he can go ahead and violate all of your rights because you can never prove that he didn't smell marijuana. So when you take the marijuana, the illegality of marijuana element out of there, now that, that, takes away their ability, at least in that aspect, of having these illegal searches and seizures. So that's that's the first step. And I'm thinking of how many people that are incarcerated for other offenses, but it started with uh, phantom smell of marijuana in the vehicle or burnt vegetation, as they say on the stand when they, they testify at trial. I smelt what was uh, burnt vegetation. My training and experience told me that was marijuana. You know, they train them to say these types of things. So this it's a great point, start. This is the point where you put a meme in with somebody screaming lies. <laughs> you know they lie. I don't believe you. I, yeah, I like the like, anchor man one way. <laughs> I don't believe you. you know, my, my experiences with racism go far beyond bag clutching and moving around in the elevator. You know what I mean? I remember mm-hmm. with uh, Brother T. Ford when the police tried to arrest him because at 2 o'clock in the morning, he mm-hmm. looked through this brother's tinted windows and saw two marijuana seeds on the floor. That's what he said. That was the on tape. I see two marijuana seeds in the back of your car through tinted windows at 2 o'clock in the morning and then demanded he get out the car he was going to shoot him. Mm. Yeah, that's wow. how they roll. That's how they roll. That, that brother was so lucky that day, T4, uh, Palmetto Star, who's been on the show a number yes, of times. Palmetto Star, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, Palmetto and to Nine Elements, man. Yeah. Great supporters, yeah. long-time supporters. Way back. We go way back. We go back, go back to, you know, when Adam and Eve was smoking that first joint, we might have been there. I don't know. It wasn't <laughs> that long after that. <laughs> but there's been some other stuff where people haven't been so lucky. They are reaching their freaking limits. What happened recently in this Oklahoma jail is it's just crazy. Um, you know, there was a hostage situation uh the mm-hmm. brother managed to get a CEO under his control, and he had a deadly weapon. I think it was a shank, a knife, or something like that. Right. And he had demands. 
so did the other people who were in the jail. This is a jail, remember now. You know, most people ain't even convicted of a crime yet. But the conditions right. of the jail was outrageous. Just looking at how they got to get there from the little hole at the bottom of the door. So you got to crawl down like an animal to the bottom of the door to get fed. Uh, they haven't had uh, showers in weeks. They haven't been getting water. The toilets are backed up. Uh, mm-hmm. They're subject to COVID because of all the people that's around them. Um, the Just so many things. And, and food. They couldn't get decent food. They were being right. fed moldy, gray crap. Uh, and, you know, these jails sometimes have these sheriffs where if you don't spend all the money on the food that you have in your budget, you get to keep it. Remember the Alabama sheriff? I wouldn't be surprised Absolutely. if that's going on in Oklahoma because I looked up Oklahoma's food and they already had several reports on it being utterly disgusting. And they had pictures of it. Like I said, gray goop. Like, what is that? <laughs> you know, you're trying to kill people in here. These aren't convicted criminals. Uh, and it's kind of Oklahoma spends less than a dollar a meal feeding people. Uh, you just got to see the images of what it is that they're sticking in people's mouths. Yeah, and, you know, I first learned of the story, you know, from a friend, the listener of the show, and definitely thank her for sending that uh, that video to me. And I know someone else sent it to you as well, Max. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I put together a track. With the with the actual audio from that uh, hostage, as they call it, hostage standoff, and I'll I'll play the track. We'll talk about it. I call it poetic uh, chaos because you, you know you we're in poetry month. You want to tell the whole story first and go into the track, or tell it after the track? I'll tell it after the track since you gave like the premise of it, and then we can speak yes. on it more on the other end of the track. All right, you're listening. So, to listening today after this track. Which is a Yusef FX. <laughs> a Yusef Abolition. Abolition. Yeah. 
Y'all, this shit real. It ain't nothing against the CO, man. We ain't got no mirrors in here. The water don't work. Toilet backed up. This is what we dealing with, huh? Niggas ain't been out there chill three, four days. Look at the run. Nigga, this water out here. Dirty old fool. Nigga, we ain't got no, we ain't got wreck, nothing. We ain't got no showers in two weeks. Our power was just out two days. We're set aside handling. So shit ain't got nothing to do with this CO. He just so happened to be a product of the situation, man. Back. And just for the clarification, I didn't take the phone, the phone was shot on my V-hole. They love to make me fuck, nigga, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, Who? Into my rescue, 
It was a S1W Secure my getaway So I just got away The joint broke from the black smoke Then they saw it was rougher Than the average bluffer Cause the steel was black The attitude is sex Now the chase is on Telling you to come on 53 brothers on the run And we Abolition. are gone Abolition Gone 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 So that was poetic chaos. I apologize about the audio there. You know, trying to work on the video, the uh, audio while it was playing. Sounded but, good to me. Oh, okay. Maybe it was just on my end that it wasn't sounding right. I don't know. It sounded good to me. But it was a mixture of, uh, you know, Isaac Hayes's, uh, this It's called hyperbolic, uh, hyperbolic uh, syllabic sesquidelic mystic. You kind of got to like sing it to get the to pronounce the word correctly, and in between, you know, that was of Curtis Williams and others on the tier at the Oklahoma jail standoff, followed up followed up by a Public Enemy, Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos, and it was just so much going on and so much being said in the video and in the song as well, you know, and even if we start with uh, you know Isaac Hayes' title. You know, when you start talking about hyperbole, you know, words that don't mean anything, you know, and if, if you listen to a lot of the statements that are, that are being put out by the jails or fraternal order of police, anytime these type of incidents happen or anytime there's someone being shot down or gunned down in the streets, there's always just a whole bunch of empty words being put out, and it just means nothing. And then you hear... The brother saying, look, all we want is water. And one point in this says, you know, we want mirrors so we don't have to come out looking like smokers, meaning like they're not, uh, you know, like they like, they want to look presentable, you know, so have a mirror, have some running water, be able to take a shower, have food, you know, that's fit for human consumption because I would, I haven't been able to find out, but I would be pretty sure that Aramark provides the food for for that county jail, as they do for most county jails around the country. And Aramark has been sued many times for selling food to the prisons that were either past their expiration dates where they were already marked as not fit for human consumption. And so you take that and you get a powder keg on top of it. And that's what was actually happened was a powder keg building up. What do you expect people to do when they can't flush their toilets or they can't take showers? They can't get wrecked. They weren't able to get commissary. You know, and this has been going on for years at Oklahoma, Oklahoma County Jail. For years this is going on. And so, yeah, it just created chaotic event and it's been building up to this for years, and this was the culmination of it, and that was that hour of chaos right there, Max. You know, America is going through depression right now. We are on edge. It's been a long time that we've been dealing with this damn pandemic, and it's changed everything about how we do everything. And we've all mm-hmm. lost people, like so many people we lost. And some of us feel it much more deeply than others, the number of loss. Uh, you know, it's just it exposed a lot of bad situations that nobody wanted to fess up to before. And now right. people have reached their limits. I mean, for God's sake, you know what an animal in a zoo will, re- how, how they will react to certain stimulus. 
You know how long a penguin can go without food and water. You can tell us about an ant colony's sociobiological functions, but God damn it, you don't know when a black man has reached his limit. Like it's right. a jail. It's not a prison. And y'all are treating people like animals in this thing. And it's not just in Oklahoma, it's all over the country. You know, when um police reach their limit and they're like, you know, this is far as we're gonna go from here on in, it's uh we're gonna use uh everything at our disposal, including killing mm-hmm. your ass. And they will kill your ass. But let's zero tolerance. Know. Right, zero tolerance. But the other side, you flip out and you're ready to start taking lives because of what's happened to you. That's a whole different story now, right? You know, you reach your limit. So these brothers just wanted some food. They just want something with no mold on it. They wanted to be treated like human beings who have yet to be convicted of a crime. Um, they want to be, you know, less horrors. And we know these are constitutional violations happening all over America, like they did in Alabama and in Ohio, where the DOJ said yes, these eight Eighth Amendment and Fourteenth Amendment violations. And even right. in the ASNN, our brothers are down in decarcerate Louisiana. Our brother Curtis Davis was just part of the team that got the Supreme Court to admit that the health treatment, medical treatment, in Angola State Prison is unconstitutional. It's like you're letting people die or you helping them to die, you know? Right. Negligence everywhere. And and it's, we have limits. And if you could tell us when a penguin is going to crap, you could damn sure tell when we've reached our damn limits. But they killed that man. They killed him, shot him dead. <clears throat> right. Um, and I understand hostage situation. The, the, slate, the overseer is there and his life matters. Overseer's life matters. Uh, but those, right. those brothers, the brother that got killed, he had a wife, kids, a family, a mother. He was somebody's brother, somebody's son. His right. life matters, too. Anyway, you spoke. And we're talking, a, yeah. Yeah, and we're talking a county jail, you know. Hasn't been convicted, you know. Most likely only there because he couldn't afford bail. Right. Because this is this this is why... The vast majority of people are sitting in county jails across the country is because they couldn't afford bail. Hey, I want to go ahead and open the phone lines five one five six zero five nine eight one four five one five six zero five nine eight one four. Remember to press the number one uh, so that we know you have a question or comment. But I want to read a comment that came from uh, my sister Misty Garrett. She said, okay. "And not yet one." She said, "And not yet one person has addressed the living conditions." That was the whole issue to begin with. Inmates ask, they repeat themselves, they beg somebody to do something, they eat food, in quotes, that I wouldn't feed to my dog. They freeze in the winter, they suffer heat in the summer, they go without water, they live in mold and mildew, they get sick and no one wants to seek medical attention. They have mental health crisis and they are told to fill out a paper and wait until they decide to get someone to see them. Then when they snap and do the only thing they know will get attention, whoo. Not everyone in prison is guilty of a crime, yet they put them with people who are guilty, people who are sick, people who do kill, and they live that way for years and years in fear of their own lives, but aren't expected to become one of those people. It's sick and twisted. That's uh, Misty Garrett, a.k.a. Giovanni Marcel. Thank you, Misty. Thank you. Yeah, like Chuck D. said, have you dwell in a cell thinking like an animal? Thinking like an animal, and it that's starts wearing on the mind. 
I, I was doing some research the other day on Nixon. I was, you know, I've been listening to the Nixon tapes off and on for some years now, studying with the NSA. <laughs> yeah, and I was listening to Nixon talking to uh, what was it, the the Attorney General's number uh, name at the time. Um, why well, I, I know it's like right in my head, but I can't pull it out. The dude that was just in the movie, uh, Black Messiah. What's his name? The Attorney General? Yeah, wasn't the Attorney General? Attorney General under Nixon. What was that guy's name? G. Edward Hoover. Hoover, right? Well, he's the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. F- J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, yeah. Where's my head at? Remember, I'm in pain and I'm but- pain pills. Keep that in mind. <laughs> I'm on pain pills. We don't admit that much right now. But J. Edgar Hoover. So I'm listening to J. Edgar Hoover and Nixon talk. And they're talking about the cop that got shot in the back of the head about 13 yeah. times or something like that. John, I don't know how you John Mitchell. John Mitchell was his attorney general. I'm talking about the FBI. Head of the FBI. Okay. Uh, Hoover. Right. Yes. Hoover. Yeah. So um, they're talking about it, and Nixon says, you know, they're going to, just like that judge, they're going to try to portray them as having problems at home, coming up in bad situations and poverty. But these are just bad people, aren't they? And J. Edgar Hoover is uh, agreeing with him, like, yes, yes, Mr. President, mm-hmm. right, they're just bad people. So we're going to have to do something about these people. This was the president talking with the FBI director about how people in the hood, and they specifically talked about urban areas, are somehow just bad people from birth. Animals, right? Right. <laughs> president. And I don't know why, when we why we didn't end the war on drugs the minute we found out for sure that it was specifically targeted at black people and war press protesters. And you know that war protesters thing really means that it was only targeted at black people because when the war is over, the war protesters are gone, and you don't need to be targeted no more. But we're gonna be black till we die for generations. So it, it was only targeted mainly at black people, and admittedly so by Ehrlichman, uh, just in 1994, when mm-hmm. the journalist who was researching it was writing a book. So he got to speak to Ehrlichman, who admitted this about Nixon, saying, you know, they did they know that they were lying? Of course they did. Uh, so it was an act of genocide. and. It, human trafficking and slavery that they committed at that point. So I don't know why we didn't reverse the drug laws immediately. Like, Has the target switched? Is it a new target I'm not aware of? Are they still focused on the same people? If the answer is yes, why are we continuing to allow it to happen? It's just one of those things that blows my mind. We know he was a crooked president. He's the only one that had to right. resign, Right. <laughs> Right. He, he's been busted in crime. We all knew he was racist as well. We all knew also that this was completely in a response to the civil rights movement and the black liberation uh, movement. Uh, and it was a direct response to that. Absolutely. And I think you and I answered the question why. When we did our episode, Blame the Presidents, that's uh, season one, episode 19, where we showed the connection from every, through every U.S. president from George Washington up to Donald Trump and their connection to slavery. 
We showed it. We showed the timeline. We showed the the bills that were signed into law, everything. Showed their ongoing connection, and it got ramped up under Nixon, and it got ramped up even further through uh, Reagan, then into Clinton, and then that's when, during those eras, that's when the private prison industry really blew up, and they they got really good at it over time. It started out where everything was just hit and miss. They were passing all these different bills in the 30s and the 40s, you know, trying to deal with interstate commerce. Then when they started getting good at it, that's when they said, okay, let's privatize this thing. Because privatization first started coming into law heavily under Reagan, and then it got ramped up under Clinton. Ramped up, yeah, would be, I guess, an understatement because it, it yeah, really definitely an blew. understatement. Yeah, um, in two in, in nineteen seventy one, the launch of the war on drugs, there were less than two hundred thousand people in prisons nationwide, and here we are in twenty twenty one, and we're over going on two and a half million, and the majority of those came up during the Clinton administration. Just went up like a mountain climbing, right? And we know why because of what they did with the introduction of the for-profit prisons and the way that they did. Wack and Hut Corrections launched their initial public offerings. Uh, they got seventy percent of the contracts from the Clinton Biden mm-hmm. administration through the Clinton Biden crime bill, which put billions of dollars into the uh, economy for uh, cities and states to adhere to certain rules. Like you had to do certain things to get this money, and there's certain things right. that we led to. Incarceration for people of color. So, and their, then you have, sorry, their uh, stock went up ten times its value in just four short years. And I was going to say Hillary Clinton really was banging the drum back then, talking about super predators. And then when she was running for office, it was like, oh, uh, you know, we can't be blamed for the unintended consequences. <laughs> As if, as if they didn't know what was going to happen. Because any time they make any type of move, they've done thorough research. They've planned things ahead. They don't just do sporadic moves. They have think tanks that they put together. They do psychological profiles. So they knew what was going to happen, and it was definitely an intended consequence. Yeah, and no, when we look at that. that era also, Max, mm-hmm. you know, we know – that it was a war going on between law enforcement and the black community. Many people maybe who didn't really study that era and don't really understand what organizations like the Black Panther Party represented. And, you know, there's always the negative stigma put in the media, not talking about how this was a community organization that was feeding children, opening up health clinics, really – Many of them were very educated, college graduates, everything. You know, they only talk about the militancy portion of it because they were protecting themselves because, you know, Hoover sicked his goons on the community. And so there were many incidents where, yes, there were very violent clashes between the Black Panther Party and the police department. And the reason I bring this up is because uh, Romaine Chip uh, Fitzgerald, 
who was a Black Panther Party member who was arrested back in 1969. So he's he was he was arrested the year I was born, and for 52 years he sat in prison. And rather than giving him compassionate relief release towards the end of his life, where he was, you know, he needed a he needed a wheelchair. He was on dialysis. He had all types of health conditions. They rather let him die in prison, and he died uh, just a week ago. You know, one of the many long-term, when we start, when you hear people talking about freeing the political prisoners, this is one of the names that was always left out of it for many people, you know, uh, Chip Chip, uh, Fitzgerald. So I just wanted to bring that up. Word, man. Uh, What they did was uh, created a monster that now numbers as among the largest for-profit, privately-owned corporations on Earth, like G4S and the GEO mm-hmm. Group and here in the United States, Core Civic. These have become monsters. They didn't exist uh, until that came along. There's an article uh, called uh, The Clinton Administration Progresses for For-Profit Prisons by Dylan Reed and Company, right? And it's by mm-hmm. Catherine Austin Fitz. This, uh, it's about eight or nine pages but they come with the receipts on everything. And it's all firsthand testimony from people that were there during the Clinton administration and Wack and Hutt's rise to glory as uh, the GEO group, as they are now known today. And, you know, Cornell Correctionals and all of these. But uh, it's probably one of the most powerful indictments that you're going to read in a decade about the for-profit prisons and who was involved in it. When I say they come with receipts, I mean they come with receipts there. So uh, I'm going to put that on our page. If you're feeling like you really want to dig deeply into your origins and the explosion of for-profit prisons, which ended up eventually influencing even further our state, federal, and local jails and prisons into this for-profit scheme, uh, you'll find a lot of information there. Yusuf? Yes, and uh, I just came across HJR 51 in Texas, which is awesome news. Uh, H.J.R. 51 is a constitutional amendment that would end slavery, even as punishment for a crime in the state of Texas. It's sponsored by Representative Alma Allen and co-sponsored by Rep. Ron Reynolds. Article 1, Section 35 will read, No person shall be held in slavery or involuntary servitude in this state for any reason, even as punishment for a crime. So this is really awesome news. I'm pretty sure uh, Savannah is behind this and her be frank for justice, Savannah Eldridge, uh, uh, and the well, many others, you know, many comrades yes. out there. Yes. Yeah, I um, came across it on her uh, YouTube channel. She's so, definitely doing the dance thing news. along with uh, the rest of the crew out there in Texas, uh, Abolish Slavery, Texas. <clears throat> right. And uh, Brother David Johnson as well. Uh, he's mm-hmm. part of all of this. So many coming together uh, to end slavery in Texas. It made me smile just hear you reading it, man. Because, you know, when I started this, there wasn't none of these. <laughs> there wasn't none of these. Right. There wasn't nobody doing none of this. Uh, you know, exactly. and now to see it all coming into life uh, and reality is just beautiful yeah. to see. So, and, 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 it's, and it's such a big story because when we think of Texas, I mean, let's let's look at Texas history. So we know Texas was the last to find out about the 13th Amendment. That's why people talk about Juneteenth and everything. Texas was 
the first to do convict leasing. Am I correct on that? I just got to make sure I'm correct on that. No, they What's weren't correct. Texas started convict leasing about four months after the news uh, from General Granger reached them. So they didn't waste no okay. time at so all. That's, that's what it is. Convict leasing. As soon as they found out, okay, there's the 13th Amendment, so let's uh, let's round them up again and let's do this uh, convict leasing. And, of course, we know about all of the mass graves that have been found out there of people who would just work to death, you know, for a simple – Black code violations, you know, not having a dollar on you or not having, you know, being being out of town for not having working papers or being caught in the sundown town and all of these types of things. When people hear in the movies, they start talking about get out of town by sundown. Well, that's a real historical thing, and it applied to black people having to be out of certain towns by sundown or they would be arrested and they'd be sold off into slavery through convict leasing. Man, this is like something out of Lovecraft. Wait, it is something out of Lovecraft. It is. Yeah, this you, is you Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah. Uh, those things actually happen, which is why it's so important now with Louisiana about to announce their bill. These southern states like Texas, Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee, they're not just going to give up on slavery. And they're going to find some kind of cunning way. Because remember, Frederick always described them as cunning. They're going to find some yes. kind of cunning way to try to avoid it. Uh, right now, they don't have anything they can grasp on well enough, so they're just using confusion. We heard that with the four neighborhoods in Tennessee at the home of the KKK, where they literally have right. a bust of a KKK Grand Dragon right there at the Capitol uh, that people of all colors have to go past. And they just voted to keep his uh, a Memorial Day for him alone. <laughs> you know what I mean? They just voted to keep right. it for the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in Tennessee. So that's what we're dealing with. And Louisiana that is that type of beast as well, where some of these parish sheriffs think they're little kings. Uh, they make a fortune just incarcerating people in their parish uh, using their jails and the prison system. And there's a film, one of the ones we recommend from the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center called Do Not Resist. And in that, they show how they're doing them in Louisiana with the no-knock raids, finding maybe mm-hmm. uh, they go through a child's backpack and found like uh, wasn't even a fingernail full. It was some dust, and they wanted to charge him with the only having dust of marijuana in a backpack that was out in the backyard. <laughs> That's what they, they were going to justify their raid for with. Mm-hmm. So that we see that happening so much all across the country. Uh, you said right. you know we, it is Poetry Month and it's Easter, and there's two dates that we got to remember. Uh, one is this the Anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Yes, yes, you know, 53 years. 53 years on uh, this day is when he was shot dead for uh, trying to do nothing more than get equal rights. So there's that. And in the poetry community, Mums the Schemer passed away a few days ago. Uh, for those that don't know, he was one of the stars of Oz as well as Deaf Poetry Jam. Um, and he was a spoken word artist of our community, you know, coming up uh, during that period. And uh, he just passed away. And I think he was younger than me, like 51 or so. Right. A few right. days ago. Mm-hmm. So strength and prayers go out that the family uh, can make it through these hard times. And uh, he won't Absolutely. be forgotten. 
Matter of fact, I already Definitely got a track won't. set up for him. <laughs> That's right. That's right. For, for this week to play. Um, and then Max. Oh, yeah. okay. 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 <laughs> Go ahead. And then we also got a nice little mix I put together. Uh, I think everybody will enjoy Okay, before you get into that, Max, I want to say one thing. One thing. You had a chance to redeem yourself, brother. I did? April 1st was Gil Scott Heron's birthday, man. Come on, Um, man. I haven't finished my dates, but, yeah, I got it written right here. MLK, Gil Scott Heron, birthday, mom's death. (laughs) I haven't finished my list. (laughs) <laughs> okay, okay, because I heard you going into, I thought you were getting ready to go into the music break, and that's why I said, come on, Max. But, yeah, I got I got a nice mix of poetry and news come together. You know how I do the Max mixes with the music. I don't have Gil Scott Haran in it, but I do have uh, Maya Angelou in it and a brother Oscar mm-hmm. Brown Jr., uh, rest in peace to both of them. Yes. You know, I, I like to, to bring their voices back to life as often as possible. Gil gets a lot of shine on this program already, and he's going to continue to do he so. Does. We got a whole month ahead, and Gil is going to be a part of it for sure. Happy birthday, Gil Scott. All right. So let's go ahead and get into our, our music break. And our music break is Maya Angelou reads Abolitionist Francis Ellen Harper's poem, The Slave Market. Uh, That's going to be followed by a clip regarding the Clinton Correctional Facility. Listen close to the backstory. And then you'll hear a clip of the Bill Clayton Detentional Center that was auctioned off, and that will be concluded with Oscar Brown Jr. Bit of men. You're listening to Abolition Today with Max Parsons and Yusuf Hassan. When we come back on the other side, uh, feel free to call in if you'd like, 515-605-9814. Remember to press 1 if you have a question or comment. Be right back. Abolition. Abolition. The sale began. This poem is called The Slave Auction. It was written by Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, a black lady poet writing in the 1850s. This was after she had seen an auction. The sale began. Young girls were there, defenseless, in their wretchedness, whose stifled sobs and deep despair revealed the anguish of their breast. And women stood with streaming eyes and saw their dearest children sold. Unheeded rose their bitter cries as tyrants bartered them for gold. And men whose sole crime was their hue the impress of their maker's hand, and small and trembling children, too, were gathered in that mournful band. And women, with their love and truth, for those in sable forms do dwell, gazed on the lovers of their youth with anguish none may paint nor tell. You who have laid your loves to rest and wept above that lifeless clay, know not the anguish of the breast whose loves are rudely torn away. The sale began. In the north country of New York, it is very sparsely populated, only about 25 miles 
from the Canadian border and full of a lot of woods and a few scattered homes and hunting cabins, lots of places to hide out. In fact, it's so far north and so cold so much of the time, many of the inmates refer to this prison as Little Siberia. It's separated from the outside world by a 60-foot wall, and the world inside can be a very harsh place starts with the inmates. Look at the numbers on all of this. There are about 2,000 inmates inside the main prison there. 90% of them are in for violent crimes. That is a high number, and it's the biggest prison in the state. The median age also matters here, because look at that, 39, and the median minimum sentence, 14 years. All of this is a formula, formula for very potential violence in this area. Beyond that, there's more. The racial makeup really counts here. The vast majority of these inmates are black or Latino, three quarters of them, and yet with more than 900 corrections officers here, only a very tiny sliver are anything other than white officers. Five in one recent survey were Latino. Everybody else is white. Again, possibly a cause for tension when you look at the whole situation, and they have had tension here before. Three quarters of the inmates in a recent survey by an inmates advocacy group said that they have been subjected to racial harassment. Beyond that, they say that fights are common and the suicide rate is actually quite high here, one of the highest in the state, high among a lot of prisons. So Anderson, all of that adds up to a place that is a very difficult place for any inmate to live. And, and Tom, basically the, much of the economy in the region relies on this prison, right? Yeah, that's why it's so hard to fix all of this, because this has been here since the 1800s, and this whole town out here, four to 5,000 people, absolutely rely on the jobs connected to this prison, and there are other towns up in New York that have a very similar equation. So every time they talk about maybe taking it down or moving it or changing it in some substantial way, local politicians will say, look, there are going to be a lot of jobs lost here, and that makes meaningful change very difficult, despite a troubled history. Who say six? 
She's healthy and strong and well-equipped. Make a fine lady's maid when she's properly whipped. Bid them in. Six. Six fifty. Don't be slow. Seven is the bid. Gonna let her go. At seven, she's going, going, gone. Pull her down, Roy. Bring the next one on. Bid them in. Get them in. Bid them in. The seal began. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Today. Abolition. Man, my Angelo reading Francis Ellen Harper, The Slave Market. Then you heard the Clinton Correctional Facility. Remember, you pay attention to that backstory, right? It means everything. And then the auction at the Bill Clayton Detention Center and what the selling point was. And this wrapped it right. all up with the late, great Oscar Brown Jr. Bit of myth. Yusuf? Yeah, that was, that was a great mix, Max. And, you know, yeah, focusing on that Clayton Correctional Facility auction, you know, when he says, you know, we'll have an endless supply of product coming through here. And product, he's talking about people because he clearly says later on. So no matter what your business is, we'll have an endless supply of people basically to provide the labor for it. You know, that, yes. that was the selling point. Yeah, that was the selling point right there. It's, it's all about money, and that's what there was going on with the Clinton Correctional Facility out in upstate New York. You got here it is. Allegedly, all of them are violent criminals, right? But three quarters right. of them are black people who have been shipped there. They went upstate, right? And now, in addition to the gerrymandering that's going on, with it's all white community now has a bunch of minorities, right? In addition mm-hmm. to that, it's a hundred percent white officers. They said five Hispanics, white Hispanics. So that means you got three quarter black people and all white officers. Does this sound familiar at all yet? And it's in upstate New York, and we've told you that the convict lease system traces back to 1777 Vermont. New York was using it too. They know it's a money maker, and they've been using it since 1800s. And they right. wouldn't empty this prison because the towns completely depend on the prisons. And and then, yeah, Max. <laughs> they Sometimes said it loud they just. And clear. Yeah, yeah. It, it can't get any clearer than that. So you know this, 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 this is where the past meets the present. So when people say, like I've heard them say before, are you trying to say that prisons are slavery? I ain't trying to say nothing. It's right there. Go to Angola. Right. You remember the slavery plantation and see who you find there. If you can find a black man picking cotton, yeah, it's slavery. <laughs> right. Because they are black men picking cotton right now for free. In freaking in Angola prison, you know, yeah, if you can go to this place here in upstate New York, Clinton, and you can see a majority of black bodies and all white, all white guards in an all white town, they're saying we can't stop it because if we stop it, we lose too many jobs and our towns will fall apart. You got a problem here, right? And then on top of it. The vast majority of those black bodies that are up there are coming from New York City. That's right. You know, we know about the million-dollar blocks, you know, especially during the 90s era under the Clinton bill. You know, they so many of them are still incarcerated. Well, thankfully, because of the overturning of the Rockefeller drug laws, many came home. But back then, you know, for the you, – you could sell – two vials of crack 
and get a 20-year sentence under the Rockefeller drug laws, which would land the person into Clinton. And then it just becomes survival skills and the animalistic conditions and mentalities, and you end up with the same type of situations that you, that we just saw in Oklahoma. And that's what they were even saying in the audio, just of how violent it gets in there. It's just a very stressful situation. And it gets it gets overwhelming when we start thinking about it and just looking at it because you're like, how could you not see this as slavery? And it's torturous you know, slavery. Torturous slavery, mentally torturous. and physically. Mm-hmm. Like you see in the Oklahoma jail. No food, no heat, no uh, coolness, no way to get cool, no water, um, nothing. He's just thrown in a cage like a slab of meat. And they collect yeah. an income on you. They pay a dollar a, uh, a meal to feed you, and they collect all of this money on you. And then you have sheriffs like the one in Alabama, which go out and spend three quarters of a million dollars on a freaking condo with the food that was supposed to be feeding prisoners in me. Right. <laughs> with the food money. Uh, we see this level of corruption all the time. Prison has become an economic development model, and it's being adopted globally. That's the biggest fear I always had and I witnessed it with my own eyes happen in, in my lifetime it wasn't like this before but then suddenly these for-profit prisons are all over the globe and they're so big that the largest employer on the entire continent of Africa is a freaking prison and security company called G4S mm-hmm. a prison company is the largest private employer on the entire continent y'all this didn't exist 30 years ago Right. You know, that envelope gets pushed a little bit more each time. And now we have giants out there, principalities and powers that are all about slavery. The sad part, though, for me, Yusuf, and and it was rubbed in for me today with Easter because, you know, I'm a follower of Christ. I don't consider myself Mm -hmm. a Christian. Uh, I do study the New Testament, and I understand Mm -hmm. Christ's message, right? And today's Uh Easter. And today, people just started attacking all Christians everywhere. Uh, you know, there was oh, some of the most disrespectful stuff on the holiest day of the year for followers of Christ, you know, and I, it just blew my mind. And I know it's because, it's, well, there's two main reasons. One, they don't got the damn answers themselves. You can believe what you want. I don't give what you believe. You can believe in uh, that Beyonce is God. You can worship snakes, you could worship the moon, uh, you could worship sidewalks. I don't care. That's on you, what you believe, as long as you ain't, what, what do they always tell us? As long as you ain't forcing it on me. But you don't right. really attack me for my beliefs all the time either. I'm not out here proselytizing all over the place. I am a minister, <laughs> yes. But, you know, my ministry isn't what I'm doing right here and now. I'm trying to be Christ-like. You ain't got to blame me for what all these other people are doing. I'm not them, you know, but that's how they do it. What are y'all doing today? You hunting bunnies and, and worshiping Easter eggs? So they don't understand uh, the Bible. They're not trying to read it or understand it in the ways that uh, we try to understand, it, you know, and it's the same thing with racism. They just adopt whatever people say is racism. People don't right. know how to distinguish 
racism from discrimination. What's the difference between racism and discrimination? What's the difference between racism, bigotry, and discrimination? What is the difference between racism, bigotry, discrimination, and justified hate? What is justified hate? <laughs> you know, what is healthy mistrust? Mm-hmm. You know, what did Ali say back in the day? If there's 10,000 snakes coming, and I got the door there open, and I know three, four of them are good. Am I supposed to wait? <laughs> right. No. It's you a healthy mistrust. Look at what you're doing to us right now. Right now. Not just the past. Right now. What you're doing to our children, our men, and our women. And it's all race-based crimes against humanity. Race and class-based crimes against humanity that include constitutional slavery and human trafficking, as well as genocide. So they don't understand it. So I found some poetry from a series called The History of White People in America. And it, mm-hmm. this poet really dropped it <laughs> to help people understand what race is, what racism is. Because uh, you can't, can't just go by what you think it is. What you think and feel means nothing. Go by what you know. If you know mm-hmm. what racism is, if you know what race is, that changes a lot, right? You don't have to guess right. no more. So let's go, unless you want to bring out something else, we can go into the first one. I'm ready. After that intro, you just, all that lead up, it's no way I, I change to something else. I, I'm sorry, but, you know, I had to, I had to do, do it. it brother, to do, do it, brother. Do it. All right. Do this it. is how, how America invented race, the history of white people in America, a presentation of independent lens. Get your pencils and paper out and take notes. We'll be right back. Abolition. Abolition. Today. Hey you, Caucasian. Grow the crop, 
They kidnap and capture men Engaged in human trafficking And trap the African And if they can't steal the labor Then they use lies as lures Of false promises as tools To recruit all the poor from Bristol to Liverpool Little did they know that they were in for something cruel Jamestown was their destination When Berkeley looks at his servants, what does he see? Color, of course, but color doesn't mean much to a man of means. They're heathens. Waste. Dirty, diseased, lazy animals. I would sooner call my hound brother than a servant of any shade. Under God and by law, he has the right to whip, maim, starve, buy, or sell them at his pleasure. But he fears them. He should. The rich are few. And the poor are many. It's almost impossible to imagine now, but the poor see themselves as one. They have a common bond and a common enemy. Together. 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 The Africans and English worked together. They labored and lived, prayed and made a life together. Stole, escaped, hold and wait together. They got lashed and went to jail together. Worked hard and catch hell together. It wasn't criminal for them to love together. Got married and had kids together. The colony was filled with different shades together. Mahogany, tan, olive, and beige together. Molasses, dark, chocolatey flavors together. Peach, bronze, amber, and brown. But very soon, life would change up in Jamestown. There's no lifetime slavery yet. The indentured Europeans and Africans can still buy their freedom. Released from bondage, they'd set out in search of land. For these new frontiersmen, freedom is a rotten promise. The rich own all the good soil, and the indigenous tribes desperately grasp for the rest, fighting for every acre they have left. The frontiersmen seethe with each new tax, each broken promise, each death, each rich man that grows richer, each poor man that grows poor, until they can't take it anymore. 1676, time to take matters into their own hands. They cast one Nathaniel Bacon as leader, the son of an aristocrat who came to the frontier after squandering his inheritance. Under Bacon, they band together to take land from the tribes and power from Berkeley. Together. Men, women, and the children. A hundred men turned into a thousand. A possum young gorilla army is the sounding. And don't go English, Angolan, Irish. Fought together, together to abolish all the tyrants and the snakes. Ready to mount the heads on stakes. Enough of these rich men. 
these false men, corrupt men, light the torches and set Jamestown ablaze. Let it burn, let it burn, let it burn. Let it burn. Jamestown put the ashes in a urn. A hundred years before the revolution, Africans and Europeans were in union. Let it burn, let it burn. The British never wanted us to earn. So bring the fire to the upper classes. We can make a better future from the ashes. Berkeley watches Jamestown burn, and he burns with vengeance. The waste must be cleansed from God's green earth. Behind a British gunship, retribution. Berkeley hangs 20 and scatters the rest into the wilderness. The rich of Jamestown know it could have been their own necks hanging from the end of a poor man's noose. To survive as rich men, as powerful men, they vow never to let the poor rise up again as one. But how? What scheme? What deception? In 1681, white will appear in a legal document for the first time in history when Virginia bans Africans from marrying whites. One law of dozens creating and separating the races. Blacks across the colonies will be enslaved for life. No longer treated as human, but as property. Poor whites were handed the whip. The rich exploited their ignorance. They traded rebellious plots for managing slave auction blocks. And any chance for both of their freedom was lost. It doesn't happen overnight. But the rich divided people by phenotype. Melanin, skin color, you dark, you light. Your life or death could be determined by the question, are you white? Are you white? Go ahead. Take a look in the mirror. Ask yourself, am I white? We are no longer allowed to marry. We are no longer allowed to start a family. We, we are, are no, no longer, longer allowed. Can we stay allowed? Should we stay inside? That we have a child? Can we stay alive? We're not coming out. Why are we vilified? Let's go underground. We are no longer allowed. Abolition. Abolition. Class is in How America Invented Race, the History of White People in America, Presentation of Independent Land. Are you white? Life or death depends on it. Mm. That's heavy. That's that's really heavy. And it's a great historical lesson, just given that timeline. You mm-hmm. know, because Yeah, he's right. Before uh what's that guy's name? Blumenbach? Johann Blumenbach? Mm-hmm. Who came up with the racial construct? Yeah, before yeah. that. There wasn't anything. Everyone was referred to by, you know, what country they were from or what they were referred to either by religious heritage or national heritage. You know, you're Scottish, you're English, you know, you're from Northern African or you're Berber, Mm -hmm. you know, any of these types of names, but never anything dealing with the color of their skin. 
Um, right off the top, I do want to give props to the poets. Like that was fabulous, educational, mm-hmm. uh, moving, uh, truthful, dropping the, the you know all the information that needs to be dropped and, and teaching. Um, a master class in a poem. Uh, poetry, man, the power of poetry, you're going to see a lot of it this month, <laughs> you know, for sure. But that was That's poetry. Right. right there, you just heard it was poetry. And there's an accompanying video that goes with it, too. If you want to check it out, a video. Um, yeah, man, this is a construct. And then it was a, more like a, a reward for towing the line, you know, because there was a time when Polish people weren't white. Italians weren't white, right. Irish weren't right. white, Jews weren't white, and you know right. all the people that are suddenly white now uh, weren't white then, <laughs> you know. So how did this occur? Uh, and it, it, there it was right in the story. Um, there's another part to that that I want to play as well, but I, I want to remind you if you have a question or comment, should we have some calls on board? Uh, press one so that we know you do have a question or comment. Otherwise, we'll just assume you're just calling in to listen via telephone. Some people do that sometimes. Um, The number to call in if you're listening online is 515-605-9814. Man, the power of poetry. We are seeing it right Uh, now. You actually have some messages, Max, coming from uh, Real Talk all the time. He says, peace, brothers. I'm listening in at work and taking it in with the brothers. Matt, love my brother Max. It's Rob. The media wanted to paint this evil picture because we were a threat to their agendas of keeping black folks oppressed. Then he says, wow, once again, you are given that knowledge. Knowledge in all caps and three exclamation points. Thank you, brother Rob. Real talk all the time for that comment or those comments. Word. uh, Appreciate it, fam. And, you know, like I said, the power of poetry, we really can express it here. Uh, I mix it during the rest of the year with other different genres, but I can do all poetry, man. (laughs) I'm a lifelong member of the spoken word community, and I understand the power of the word. It's why I do what I do now. When I first Mm -hmm. came into spoken word and poetry, um, I've been a poet all my life. I'd also been a hip-hop artist as well, and so were my kids. Um, First hip-hop family. Yeah, the first hip hop family, the first family in hip hop history. Yes. Brothers and sisters, all brothers and sisters. Yep, and it's pretty awesome. Bring they had up the newspaper article show. to prove it. Yeah, they had a little TV show going on. Did a lot of radio when they were playing them on the number one station in New York and New Jersey and stuff. They did their thing, but you know, I learned something about spoken word, man. It's just it's so powerful, like. And I used to do it for the love of poetry and the love of spoken word, but then I realized there's things that need to get done. And if you're gifted, if you have a talent like that that was given to you freely, don't just do it for the sake of it, not all the time. You can use that as a tool to make change. It's a gift, right? <laughs> and you can give it away in a way that makes change. And I love people that do that. So that's what I, I do with my voice. All right. And so in next, fact, didn't your yeah. mentor... I know your mentor, Amiri Baraka. We opened the show, you know, yes. with him. But there's, there's something he said about the obligation that the poet has, right? Yes. When it and comes to activism. I can't quote it verbatim point because there's quite a bit to it. Um, but I'm certainly living up to it, that's for sure. And I'll get the quote before the evening is out. Um, 
in regards to what is expected of us as an artist. He also talked about using art as a weapon because art is in everything around you and it's being used against you. I mean, that's you know, what I was thinking so- of using art as a weapon. Right. That's that's what Amiri taught, taught us. Uh, he's one of my mentors for sure. Him and Abiodu Oyewole taught me so much. Um, but yeah, using using art as a tool, it can change the world. And poetry, uh, the oldest known art, the no, oldest known writing in the world so far, I believe, is cuneiforms from the Sumerian times, nearly five thousand mm-hmm. years old. And that's a quatrain, right. which is a freaking poem. And spoken it word is. poem predates that. In the beginning was the word. A few words can make all the difference, which is why we argue so much about using mass incarceration. You take the bite out of slavery when you call it mass incarceration. You go from a crime against humanity to some mistakes some faceless people have made over time with no accountability whatsoever. You know, and, and I have that same argument when it comes to prison abolition versus slavery abolition, because you know they're, they're redefining abolition and treating it more as an ideology where you abolish everything in sight and dismantle the system, but it completely leaves no room at all for slavery abolition. And slavery abolition does not belong in the same bucket with uh, dismantling prison or defunding the police. That, that's that's not even the same category. This one is a crime against humanity. This one is a strategy to dismantle a system. They're not in the same categories. And just people don't seem to get that no matter how hard I try. But that's because many don't really understand the system of slavery as we're explaining it here today. Hopefully, you're getting it. So to keep it moving, let's go into part two. All right, Yusuf? Uh, That's going to be – it's going to start with an ancestry website. And then we're going to roll right back into how America made skin color power the history of white people in America. Well, you're listening to Abolition Today, and oh, wait a minute, there's a hand up. Before I play it, I don't want to miss it. Yeah, I believe, I believe that's Sean. My guess will be that that's Sean. I was just about hey, to get into it. What's up, Sean? <laughs> hey, I just had a comment about, um, kind of goes back to the beginning of the show, but also segues into what you're just saying um, about um, education. Is um, it's not just the universities that are um, deceiving people or miseducating people. It's also these public museums. Um, if you go back to, um, there's a term that people use a lot nowadays called the afterlives of slavery, um, which I believe comes from um, the afterlives of slavery. Which is back to um, a Columbia University professor, Saida Hartman who kind of talks about the conditions after emancipation being almost like slave-like, um, which I believe actually even precedes mass incarceration. I believe it's like in 2007. But there's also um, museums. I think the, the uh, Museum in Washington for um, African-American history and culture, like they're using that term. There's a universe, there's, I'm sorry, a museum in the Netherlands that's using this term. So it's like, it's like a globalized term now. So I was just wondering if we have wow. anybody from a globalized bubble who are fighting, you know, you can go to university and get miseducated, but you can go to the public, be a member of the public, you know, and, and be kind of researching, thinking, thinking that you're educating yourself. And then there's all this miseducation going on. And I, I, I imagine there's a lot of money behind it now. Um, if you even like just go to YouTube and Google the phrase afterlives of slavery, there's like, there's like so many academics talking about it that way. Wow. Um, so I just didn't yep. know if there's any any way of educating people through these 
through these museums, you know, or confronting, you know, people who are, you know, in these positions, educate, miseducating the public and using this language that's actually false. <laughs> well, let me, let me say, first of all, I'm appreciative of you. And I think that was your birthday that we were talking with George James, wasn't it? Oh, the day before. Oh, what, so, yeah. The day before your birthday. Yeah, happy birthday. It was an early birthday present. Yeah, early birthday present. Happy belated. Happy belated. Good oh, thank conversation you. with the academics of this country, uh, political academics mm-hmm. as well as historians um, who are getting on board. They understand. And here's the problem you know, they knew to a degree, but they didn't know. You know, this is really new mm-hmm. information to a lot of people who are absorbing it. And until they got this missing link of information that they had never really paid attention to before, they had to fill in the blanks uh, and make mm-hmm. some stuff up or try to put things together that were missing apart. Like convict leasing wasn't even a part of the conversation. That was a huge missing link. They're going from chattel mm-hmm. slavery to what we're dealing with today. It took us a while to get that back into the English lexicon. And mm-hmm. now that they have it, they're starting to change their minds. And I hope they do. Uh, it looks like mm-hmm. we are really pushing that forward, and the people we're talking to are susceptible to it and agreeable to it. So let's just hope mm-hmm. we keep spreading further. Uh, you know, now is the time for the truth to come out. You might not have mm-hmm. had it before, but if you've heard this show, you know that you may choose to look the other way, but you can never again say that you did not know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I think that the purpose of my comment is that we're fighting it on the university level and like on the museum level. You know what I mean? Like there's different there's different levels of the fight, you know, but they're, they're using the same rhetoric, which is, right. you know, as we know, is wrong. So I just wanted to bring in that point that it may have to go beyond the universities to other public institutions that are miseducating people. It's just it's amazing. Thought. It's done with like 14 words. Uh, and really, it's it's done with three main words uh, that they use in 99.9% of the uh, exception clauses, except, otherwise, and unless. When you see one of those three words, you're about to get bamboozled mm-hmm. for doing mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. you know, that's Just three little magic words change everything. And that is the power of words. So, uh, all right, I'm going to go ahead and, unless you had another comment, I want to get into I said this. One other thing, real quick, is um the whole yeah. the whole notion of language again, like with um talking about the voting laws and the new Jim Crow's stuff again, like it just feels like people just get such a part. I mean, obviously voting is important, but it's usually most seen as the most important. I was just wondering your thoughts that people talk about the new Jim Crow in in relation to what we're doing as you know the the new abolitionists. They they misrepresent Jim Crow. Uh, they're only looking at it from one side of the coin, and that's the side of the coin of those who never made it into the prisons or jails. But there was a mm-hmm. punishment for breaking those laws. And guess what happened when you broke those laws? You got caught up into the convict lease system or into the prison mm-hmm. for profit system. All of that actually occurred, but it became so normalized that the only opinion after a while that counted was those who were free because if you were in a jail or prison, you must have done something wrong. <laughs> you know, that was right, how right. they had us believe in ourselves. Like, we were the problem. That's gaslighting to the extreme. And we mm-hmm. weren't the problem. We had been uh, criminalized. Our lives were being criminalized. We forced into mm-hmm. poverty. Nobody was giving up no 40 acres and a mule. Well, they wasn't giving away an acre and a, and a tail slash. They, they wasn't giving up <laughs> nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I appreciate that. That's a very good way of putting it. It's 
it's just so frustrating when people just give you like a set, such a little bit of the problem, you know. Right. Think how, right. It's all about education, brother. <laughs> and if, if it were up to me, there would be a few things that everybody would be required to learn in grammar schools and high schools and universities. And in certain areas, you wouldn't even be allowed to graduate if you didn't know like your constitutional mm-hmm. rights. From the First Amendment mm-hmm. to the 15th Amendment, you got to know that. I don't care if you want to know it or not, you got to know it because that's right. your rights. And if you don't know what your rights is, that means they're going to violate your rights. And if they get away violating your rights, they'll think they can do the same damn thing to everybody else. Mm-hmm. And we all have them. So rights would be one thing, you know. But I won't get into that big list. Let's go ahead and get in on this music because we're running short on time. No uh, thanks thanks for calling poetry. in, Sean. Yes, thank yes you brother. Thanks. Peace. And I'll talk to Peace. you soon. Yes, so this is a spoken word and poetry. Uh, Kim Peel, Ancestry website, followed by How America Made Skin Color Power, The History of White People in America, a Presentation of Independent Lens. We'll be right back. Abolition. Abolition. What can I say about Ancestry.com? My adventure began when I received a leaf pointing me in the direction of my great-grandfather, who was a pilot with the flying aces in World War I. On my mother's side, I found an aunt who traced her lineage all the way back to Thomas Jefferson. I was able to trace my bloodline back to nobles and even a king. I discovered I'm a direct descendant of Eric the Red. After only a couple of hours on Ancestry.com, I was able to trace my family line all the way back to none other than our third president, Thomas Jefferson. Marie Antoinette. Thomas Jefferson. Aristotle. Thomas Jefferson. Alexander the Great. Thomas Mother f- Jefferson. Join Ancestry.com and begin a one-of-a-kind journey into your unique past. Because you never know where your story begins. Thomas Jefferson. Baby, baby, I'm morning. I'm morning, morning, morning. Mama, tell me about my... Tell me about my father, my father. Oh, baby, read this. Notes on the State of Virginia by Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson. The first difference which strikes us is that of color. The first difference which strikes us is that of color. Whether the black of the skin proceeds from the color of the blood, the color of the bile, or from that of some other secretion, the difference is fixed in nature. Black of the color. And is this difference of no importance? Is it not the foundation of a greater or less share of beauty in the two races? Are not the expressions of every passion in the color of white preferable to that eternal monotony, that immovable veil of black which covers all the emotions of the other race. Superior beauty. Superior beauty is thought worthy of attention in the propagation of our horses, our dogs, and other domestic animals. Why not of that in man? It appears to me that in memory they are equal to whites, in reason much inferior, 
and an imagination. They are dull, tasteless, and anomalous. They are at least as brave and more adventuresome. But this may proceed from want of forethought. They are more ardent for their female. Love seems with them to be more an eager desire than a tender, delicate mixture of sentiment and sensation. Their griefs are transient. They seem to require less sleep. We hold, we hold, we hold, we hold, we hold these truths to be self-evident. This unfortunate difference of color and perhaps of faculty is a powerful obstacle to the emancipation of these people. Deep-rooted prejudices entertained by the whites. 10,000 recollections by the blacks of the injuries sustained. New provocations will divide us and produce convulsions across this nation, which will probably never end but in the extermination of one by the other. Mama, read this. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. Thomas Jefferson. Uh, in case mm-hmm. they didn't know, now they know. We started with Key and Peel. Everybody's related to John. Tom, all black people are suddenly related to Thomas Jefferson. And then that was actually a description of uh, Thomas Jefferson's son asking to be told about his father. And his mother, Sally Hemings, said to read this, which was his father's writings, which were an anti, uh, which which were completely hypocritical and diametrically mm-hmm. opposed to what he was actually doing. I thought that was brilliant. Spoken word again, y'all. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, how, that's spoken word at its best when you're hearing it like that, and it, it's so powerful, factual, true. Um, yeah. So, how America made skin color power. The history of white people in America. When we were talking to Joy James, Dr. Joy James, she asked me mm-hmm. at one point how I feel about capitalism. And I told her two things about that. One, that to the best of my knowledge, the first mention of capitalism in the United States was Thomas Jefferson referring to his female slaves, those that he had enslaved African women, uh, because they could give birth, they would provide more capital. Um, and that was the first record that I've heard of here in the United States talking about capital. And the second thing right. is, I'm not fighting capitalism. I'm fighting slavery. I want my people to be free. And I know that there's connections with it, but I'm going to focus on this thing that I'm certain is a problem. It's not the, the root very cause. The root, root cause. cause of it all. 
I'm not going to go to what you've been fighting for a million years. I'm not moving away from this. You know, if you can't name your top 10 modern day slavery abolitionists, then I need to keep talking. <laughs> you know, if you can't think right. of 10 right off the top of your head, that means we need more. We need more people talking about it. We don't need to go back to what we've been trying over and over and over again. Those things all make a difference, but let's keep the focus on the thing we've never done before, the most important thing, in slavery. That's it. That's it. That, you know, that's what our, our ancestors fought and died for. They didn't fight and die to get the right to vote. They didn't fight and die to get the right to assimilate. They didn't fight and die to get the right to live next to white people. They fought and died for freedom, for freedom from slavery. Wow. Okay. So, you see where I'm at. And we're coming up close to the end of the program. We got a 10 minute uh, bridging the gap clip today, which I want to give a little bit of a brief introduction to. So, let's go ahead and uh, make our final closing comments for the evening and shout out to our sponsors. Yes, by all means. We uh, shout out to our sponsors, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. I am we, Ubuntu Prison, Prison Advocacy Network, Sama Urge, Quakers Uplifting Racial Justice, the Paul Cuffey Abolitionist Center, Prismatic Dreams, and the Black Talk Radio Network. Max, I'm not going to have any closing comments because I just want to reserve the extra time for you leading into tonight's Bridging the Gap. I just will say uh, to all of our listeners, whether you listen live or you listen through the archives, thank you for your support. Continue to support us. Continue to spread the word. Uh, for those who are new, subscribe to our YouTube page for all the news, information, and music you hear on the program. We're also available on all the major podcast platforms, and we're simulcast on the Black Talk Radio Network. Also remember to join the movement at AbolishSlavery.us to become a part of the solution. We'll be back on April 11th, inshallah, God willing, with the number of the master class on slavery abolition. Don't forget to tune into. Uh, the show next Sunday. So, Max, I love you, oh, brother. Yeah. I'll talk to you. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to enjoy the Bridging the Gap segment that you put together for this evening. Thanks, fam. And uh, March 11th, our guest will be Wayne Breeze Watkins. Uh, he is an OG in the spoken word community, and we're going to play some of his music uh, and talk about slavery abolition. So that'd be the 11th. What I'm about to share with you now starts out with the contemporary conflation of slavery in the Bible, and I'll read it as it's described. The topic of slavery in the Bible has been a hotly contested issue for centuries. In contemporary society, confusion typically stems from its conflation with more modern forms of slavery. This video briefly touches on some of those stark differences and speaks to the importance of reading antebellum slave narratives in discussion of this topic, and it'll be Brandon Cleaver who will be explaining it to you. And then that's going to be followed by a poem written by none other than Frederick Douglass himself and before, performed by Nathan M. Richardson, and it's called The Parody. I want to thank you for tuning in tonight. Uh, make sure you tune in with us next week. Appreciate you, Sean, as always. Uh, You've been listening to Abolition Today here at abolitiontoday.org. Remember, all the news clips and stories we have are either on our social media Facebook page at Abolition Today or 
on our YouTube page as well at Abolition Today. Uh, until next week, think about it. Abolition Today. Abolition Today. Abolition Admittedly, I struggled as to whether I wanted to include a video discussing the ongoing problem of slavery in the Bible, not because I think it's unimportant or that it's been sufficiently addressed to be a moot point, but there are so many other incredible achievements and critically important historical events concerning African Americans, faith, and culture that I initially balked at discussing this topic to the possible inclusion of other topics. But as I began to think about the contemporary relevancy of this subject, Three groups came to mind. Number one, atheists who continue to think that the Bible condones slavery and is therefore a significant moral flaw in an omnibenevolent God. Number two, Christians who are confused by the descriptions and dialogue of slavery in the Bible. And number three, African Americans. You see, we, we, we share this unique post-traumatic bond to slavery, so this subject can be of particular interest and concern. Now, the confusion that often concerns slavery in the Bible is primarily due to our conflation of pre-Civil War or antebellum slavery and the slavery as described in the Bible. This comparison, which I'll elaborate more on shortly, and our subsequent aversion to it in the Bible, is understandably made due to our familiarity of the abhorrent nature of pre-Civil War slavery. So I think it's helpful to think about this subject from the perspective of the two primary pillars of both of these forms of slavery the motivation, and the treatment. Economics was the motivation for both antebellum slavery and the slavery described in the Bible. Antebellum slavery concerned colonists desiring free and perpetual labor. Now, this, of course, was, was achieved through the socially constructed idea of race, and that being this idea that race isn't a biological fact, and subsequently the supposed racial inferiority of African Americans. The transatlantic slave trade marked the event in which millions of Africans were kidnapped and forcibly brought to the Americas, with millions dying en route. All of these factors and others meant that pre-Civil War slavery was involuntary. But slavery in the Bible was quite different. First off, the, the very Hebrew word that's often translated as slavery in the Bible, or as slave in the Bible, given our modern sensibilities, is more properly rendered as servant. And this would actually make sense given their cultural context. You see, slavery among the Hebrews in the Old Testament typically occurred when individuals sold themselves into servanthood to pay off debt. Therefore, it was voluntary. Additionally, the Hebrews actually had laws prohibiting kidnapping, such as in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16. And Hebrew slaves or servants were not subjected to that same kind of perpetual bondage like in the case of pre-Civil War slavery. Their servitude was akin to a con contractual agreement where they would be released after seven years. Now, the treatment in both instances was also vastly different. Again, due to this false idea of racial inferiority, enslaved Africans were viewed as subhuman and therefore were treated as chattel or property. Torture, rape, murder, and family separation were all commonplace examples of the kinds of impunity that slave masters could use to try and, and create this, this docility among the Africans. Yet again, this was a far cry from what was legislated in Old Testament servitude. 
The book of Leviticus, for example, notes that the master is to treat his slave as a yearly servant and is not to rule ruthlessly over him. Now, this isn't to say that there were never times when a master mistreated his servants. It's not what I'm saying at all. But the point is that if any such treatment did occur, it was deemed as morally unacceptable, and there are various Old Testament laws that will support this idea. It's also important that we consider what formed the grounding or the moral foundations that established how the Israelites were to treat others. Number one, this uniquely Judeo-Christian notion that all human beings are made in the image of God, which means that in spite of one's social status or ethnicity, we are all of, of equal worth and value because we were made to be like God, but not the same as God. The Old Testament character Job affirms this idea of equality when speaking of the master-slave relationship. He says, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Of course, referring to his servants. And he also goes on to say, did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Now, secondly, Israel's own history of enslavement in Egypt served as a reminder of how it should treat others. Old Testament scholar Christopher J.H. Wright notes, Israel looked back to four centuries of slavery in a foreign land, which had become increasingly oppressive, inhumane, and unbearable. The experience colored their subsequent attitude to slavery enormously. Now, there's much, much more that can be said about this topic. You know, there's the question of non-Hebrew slaves, and there's instances of slavery in the New Testament, such as the book of Philemon. Now, some of these I've addressed in an article in the description to this video. And in the future, I plan on writing more specifically about some of the really challenging Old Testament passages. But instead of going into those, I'd rather spend an additional moment giving an important postscript to this discussion. I want to really encourage all the viewers to take the time to read some of the narratives from enslaved Africans during the antebellum period. They were victimized by the perversion of many biblical texts by slave masters and ministers in order to substantiate their subservient role and rooted in this divine mandate. Yet instead of merely adopting the heinous interpretation of racial inferiority, the enslaved Africans often noticed an incongruity in the messages between what the master or minister conveyed and what they came to discover in the text themselves. So although they had been psychologically traumatized, many enslaved Africans such as Frederick Douglass, Harriet Jacobs, and Olada Equiano discerned that this message of predestined African inferiority was simply false. So, it, so if anyone had reason to question the moral aptitude of the God of the Bible, it was those enslaved Africans. Now also, the slave narratives served to, to humanize the enslaved Africans during that period. They were real people with thoughts and feelings and intellect, and their narratives possessed a wealth of stories and reflections that not only provide us insight into their thoughts on this subject, but also further connects them to the contemporary reader. As the distinguished African-American theologian, writer, and social activist Howard Thurman aptly noted, by some amazing but vastly creative spiritual insight, the slave undertook the redemption of a religion that the master had profaned, had profaned in his midst. Come saints and sinners, hear me tell How pious priests whip Jack and Nell And women buy and children sell 
and preach all sinners down to hell and sing of heavenly union. They'll loudly talk of Christ's reward and bind his image with a cord and scold and swing the lash of horde tell their brother in the Lord to handcuffed heavenly union. They'll raise tobacco, corn, and rye, and drive and thieve and cheat and lie, and lay up treasures in the sky by making switch and cowskin fly in hopes of heavenly union. Love not the world, the preacher said, and winked his eye and shook his head, then seized old Tom and Dick and Ned, cut short their meat and clothes and bread, and still love heavenly union. Another preacher whining spoke, of one whose heart for sinners broke. He tied old nanny to an oak and drew the blood with every stroke and prayed for heavenly union. All good from Jack another take and entertains their flirts and rakes. They dress as sleek as glossy snakes and cram their mouths with sweetened cakes. And this goes down for union. Abolition. 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 Abolition.